A historic declaration on the Colorado River. Farmers in Arizona brace for cuts to their share. So every single thing we can do, we're trying, but there's always so much you can do. As Americans prepare to roll up their sleeves for a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, what to know about the rollout of booster shots in Pima County. Probably at the highest, we'll have to do about 20,000 vaccines a week. And what the results from the 2020 census reveal about the state's changing demographics. Five Arizona counties lost population. Hello and welcome to Arizona 360. I'm Tony Paniagua, filling in for Lorraine Rivera. Thanks for joining us. It is a first for a river that has flowed for millions of years throughout the Southwest. This week, the federal government declared a shortage along the Colorado River. The announcement comes as no surprise as levels in Lake Mead hit historic lows this summer. But of the states that the Colorado supplies, the cuts carry the most weight for Arizona. Under the drought contingency plan agreed upon by seven states, when levels in Lake Mead trigger a, quote, tier one shortage, Arizona sees its share of Colorado River cut by 18 percent. As for when the cuts take effect and who it will impact the most, I'm joined by Arizona Public Media's Christopher Conover. Christopher, thanks for being here. And quite a significant decision by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. How did this come about? It is a significant decision, and it really dates back most recently to the drought contingency plan, as you mentioned, that was signed in 2019 by seven states, Arizona being one of them. It was approved by our legislature, and then the whole plan was approved by Congress, and that laid out what happens as shortages get declared along the Colorado River. So let's take a look at a map, because a lot of times we don't even know exactly where the Colorado River is. And tell us a little bit about when it comes into Arizona, where does it go first? It comes into Arizona in Page, Arizona, Lake Powell. A lot of people know that as a place to rent a houseboat or spend a weekend. It comes then heading west towards the uh, Grand Canyon, goes through the Grand Canyon, made the Grand Canyon, and it works its way towards the Arizona-Nevada border near Las Vegas, Lake Mead, that's the other one everybody knows. And then the Colorado follows almost the Arizona, Nevada, and California borders going south, and it leaves the U.S. going into Mexico at Yuma. Now, some people may say, well, wait a minute, how does Tucson, Phoenix, uh, Pinal County get their water from the Colorado? That's the Central Arizona Project. Water is diverted towards Phoenix, Lake Pleasant, and that's the top of the Colorado uh, River for us, the Central Arizona Project. And then through a series of canals, it comes down through Phoenix, Maricopa County, Pinal County, and ends in, here in Tucson. And it isn't only Arizona that's going to be taking a cut. I also read that it's uh, also going to be Nevada and the country of Mexico. So this is going to have an impact on millions of people. Millions of people. And Arizona takes the biggest cut. That was part of the drought contingency plan. It's what we agreed to. And that is a long time coming. And part of that is because of the Central Arizona Project. Historically, there have been many, many agreements on the use of the Colorado River. And of course, here in the state of Arizona, many of those that are worried are farmers because I was reading somewhere else as well that apparently about 20% of the state's water supply is used for municipal purposes, the cities, the towns, and so on. But the other 80% is used by other industries. Right. Under the drought contingency plan, when a tier one shortage is declared in Arizona, it's agriculture that takes the lion's share of that cut. Agriculture has already been taking some cuts, but 
as this official shortage has come along, agriculture takes the big cut, which for our viewers really means Pinal County. There is some agriculture in Pima, there is some agriculture in Maricopa, but Pinal County farmers, the cotton farmers there will take the big cut. So when is it scheduled to start to go into effect? The cuts are announced now, they were announced this week. They go into effect in January. And of course, uh, what happens next? Because that's the big concern. Much of it will depend on how much snow we get in the state of Colorado, because that's where our water is. Uh, it begins, right? Right. The headwaters of the Colorado River. It depends on winter snowpack. Of course, all the rain we've been getting here in southern Arizona is great. It means we have to uh, water our plants, water our crops less, but it only recharges our local aquifers. So they need snow in the Colorado Rockies, they need rain in the Colorado Rockies, and it is going to take time. Climate experts say this is probably potentially closer to the new normal though. The next issue is the tier two cut. It's when the lake falls even further, and some people are expecting that as soon as the end of 2022. And then one final question, uh, Christopher, any idea on what could uh, trigger cuts for municipalities? Because, of course, most of the people are living in cities and towns. It all comes down to the cuts that we have to take on Tier 2 and Tier 3. I talked to, in the course of my reporting, Tucson Water, which supplies a lot of our viewers with its water. And they're not worried because they've been storing their Colorado River water, the allotment that Tucson Water gets, we have it stored, they said, for about a decade. And that doesn't mean go out and leave the hose running or let the shower run for too long, but we have plenty of water in the Tucson Water Basin for right now. Christopher Conover, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we'll look forward to more reports from you. My pleasure. And as you just heard, Arizona's agricultural industry will bear the brunt of the shortage's impacts. We travel to Pinal County, west of Casa Grande, where a farmer and his family are bracing for the cuts. Will Thielander and his family have been farming in Pinal County for several decades, beginning with his grandfather in the 1940s. The Tempe Farming Company grows crops such as cotton, alfalfa, and corn. Been great. Um, started off just helping out, uh, then got more and more duties around the farm. Eventually became a partner um, a few years back. And yeah, it's been going great um, with all these water cuts that we've been facing. And so it's gonna be a lot more difficult moving forward. Thielander is referring to the tier one cuts along the Colorado River approved by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. The Central Arizona Project, or CAP, is an expansive and expensive system that won't be able to deliver as much water as usual to the middle of the state. The Tier one cuts, specifically our irrigations district, their contract with the CAP, and we're getting cut back by a ton of it. So now instead of getting surface water from the Colorado, we're gonna have to do a lot more ground water pumping. So that's what it means. We're gonna have a lot less water. Any idea on the number of farmers in this area that are going to be impacted by this tier one? Uh, farms our size, uh, there's about I wanna say like eight really big farms that are gonna be making massive decisions this year on how much to plant and equipment and all that stuff. During this monsoon, which has dropped record rainfall in cities like Tucson, Thielander's situation seems surreal. 
On our way to his farm west of Casa Grande, the raging green wash adjacent to I-8 kept us from reaching his property. We detoured to his cousin's farm instead. Does it seem ironic that we couldn't get to your farm because of this wash yeah, running so heavily it's, right now? Uh, very ironic because <laughs> wish wish I could just build a giant reservoir and catch it also I'd have water for next year, but life doesn't work that way. I wish those monsoons would just wait until the winter and go snow up in the Rockies. The Colorado is fed by that snow melt, but this monsoon rain is a different story. It is very much appreciated, but unpredictable as a long-term solution. Well, yeah, everyone's just like, oh, it rains, so now we have water. It's like, nope, there's reservoirs have to be above the city, so Phoenix, Tucson, reservoirs. Water can flow down. It doesn't. We got a bunch of water raining right here. We can pump it once it sinks in, but not a lot sinking in when you got a river flowing. So. Yep, unfortunately, this doesn't help with the Colorado. The district's doing everything it can to uh, drill wells throughout the district to try to move as much water as we can to keep as much in production as we can. Thielander has already stopped using hundreds of acres on his farm in order to save water. And he's also experimenting with plants that require less irrigation. Farmers, he says, are trying their best as a competition for this precious resource heats up. So every single thing we can do, we're trying. There's only so much you can do. People are always gonna come first. And when there's only so much water, uh, development for people makes a lot more money than agriculture on a per acre or a land basis. So you're not gonna win money-wise and you're not gonna win, hey, tell people they can't have water. And the amount of water agriculture uses compared to the you know, civilian population, it's like, I think it's 80% of all water goes to agriculture. So we're gonna be the first cut. One thing I hear from a lot of people online, because some of the other interviews, is the fact that we shouldn't be farming in the desert anyway. And then I, my retort to that is, all the farmers and everyone built all the infrastructure for all these people to move out here. Without us, none of these people would be here. And to that point, should we have people living in a desert? Should we build a city in the middle of a desert? I don't know. These are all questions that everyone could be asking themselves. It is what it is, and who am I gonna yell at? The, the clouds for not dumping enough snow in the Colorado, for them over allocating the Colorado River a while ago when we were in our wet period, when the scientists even know we were in a wet period. So, I mean, there's no one to be mad at. It's just do everything you can to keep moving forward. This week, the Biden administration recommended COVID-19 vaccine booster shots for most Americans. People who received their second shot eight months ago can get a third dose of Pfizer or Moderna as soon as next month. But the White House has signaled certain groups have priority. As for what the rollout of boosters in Pima County could look like, we asked Public Health Director Teresa Cullen. So there's two different parts of that approach right now. One is if you are immunocompromised. 
that is a decision that many people may be able to make themselves. If you've had cancer, if you're under chemo treatment, if you've had a transplant, if you're on certain medications, you would be considered immunocompromised. Many people will know that themselves. Some people may need to discuss that with their provider. People that are immunocompromised should seek a third shot right now if they've had the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. J&J, we're not sure yet. The data isn't in, so we're discussing that. The larger issue is for everyone that's been fully immunized more than eight months since their second immunization or their first shot if it was J&J. The recommendation we believe will come out and we heard it from the White House is that at that eight month time period people should seek another booster shot. Now remember that and it seems so long ago when we started doing immunizations, but there was this categorization 1A, 1B. 1A was healthcare workers, long-term care assisted living. So what we believe we'll see is in that first trotch of people, most of them will be the people that were healthcare workers, long-term care and assisted living. We are waiting for full guidance from the CDC and what we call the ACIP, which is the Committee on Immunization Practice. And for those people who are against vaccinations, they're already using this uh, recommended booster as a reason not to get vaccinated. They're right. saying, you know, these vaccines don't work because they're already asking us to get a third vaccine. How would you respond to those people? Well, I think people need to remember that. Remember when you're little or if you've ever had children, they get multiple vaccines that are the same vaccine repeatedly. The flu shot, we update the flu shot every year. It does not mean that the flu shot last year wasn't effective. It just means that we needed to boost your immune system a little. So there's no indication that the vaccination process that we've done right now the J&J, &J, Moderna, Pfizer is ineffective. What we worry about is this sense of uh, decreased immunogenicity, which means your response might not be as great as it would have been the first three, four, five, six, seven, eight months after you got your first shot. So we're just giving you additional protection. We're, you're, we're making your shroud less penetrable, less able to, for you to get the disease. And insofar as the booster shots, is the county playing a role? Are you assisting in this effort? Yeah, it's a great question. We're in the process of developing our plan to ensure that we can do the boosters. Right now for immunocompromised people, all of our clinics have extended hours. Uh, you know, uh, people may not know this, but we do run three health clinics and they have hours till seven at night. We've worked with the pharmacies. They're all able to give the boosters right now. I, will, I do want to clarify for people that we're not asking you to prove that you're immunocompromised. There, there is a implicit element of trust, remember, in the patient provider healthcare network and our relationship with you. So we're, we're asking that people that are immunocompromised, either because they know that or their provider has told them that, to seek the third vaccination. Uh, as we move into the larger vaccination in, uh, in September, we will be playing a large role. We actually, uh, like I stated, we're in the process of trying to, uh, trying to develop the appropriate response to that. We do believe that we will be continuing to have mobile clinics. We have lots now. We're gonna expand those so that we can accommodate the influx of people that need a second shot. On our back of the envelope calculation, we think at, at probably at the highest, we'll have to do about 20,000 vaccines a week. Uh, right now, our pharmacies are doing a great job. They're doing about three to 5,000 a week. So what we're gonna have to do is all work together to make sure we can escalate that number.
Are there enough vaccines to go around or are you concerned that there won't be if many, many people turn up saying that they want this booster shot? We do have enough vaccines. As people have known, we have vaccines in supply and in the, remember the low temperature freezers, we have lots of vaccines. So what we saw, remember in January and February when people were really struggling and really frustrated because they couldn't get a vaccine, that is not going to be the situation this time. Any idea on when younger children might be able to get vaccinated? Uh, How are those studies coming along? You know, those studies are coming along. Remember, what will have to happen is the drug companies uh, who make Pfizer or Moderna vaccines or J&J will have to submit to the FDA. They'll have to go through that emergency use authorization process. There have not been submissions yet to them. We know that the studies are ongoing and we are aware that some of them are complete. We do expect or we anticipate and hope that Perhaps by the end of September, early October, we'll see the extension of the vaccine into that age group. We've heard about younger children in other states getting sick, very sick. Uh, Is this a concern right here in Pima County and the rest of the state? Yeah, pediatric cases do seem to be increasing from COVID. We know that there are pediatric admissions. I think what's important to notice within the school system itself, and this number changes by the hour. Uh, Since we went back to school, we have had over 800 cases reported to us. We've had a very significant number of outbreaks, which continue to be reported. And we work very closely with the schools. You know, from the public health perspective, we have the ability to to mandate isolation and quarantine for individual students. Uh, We work with the schools to identify who's at risk, who isn't at risk. If there's a recommendation to close a classroom, that recommendation comes from us. And actually, it's more than a recommendation. It's a mandate that certain classrooms be closed if they meet certain infection rates. Dr. Teresa Cullen from the Pima County Health Department, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. About 90% of the businesses in Arizona are considered small based on their staffing levels. It is estimated about 5% shut their doors during the last 18 months or so. Rick Murray from the Arizona Small Business Association says it is in large part because of the pandemic caused revenue to drop 30 to 40 percent. He spoke to Lorraine Rivera recently about the challenges that small businesses are up against. Here's their discussion. Rick, let's look back. How have small businesses throughout the state of Arizona fared during the pandemic? Well, it's uh, kind of a, a, a good and a bad of it. Uh, certainly, uh, we've discovered a lot of things that we can do that we didn't think we could do at the beginning. But uh, it's been a tough road for most of the small businesses. And then coming back now, it's been uh, equally as tough. Uh, it's tough to find employees, uh, it's, you know, bringing customers back. You know, we've got more mandates from a mass standpoint. And so it's uh, it's kind of been one of those up and down, herky-jerky stop and go in regards to what uh, what our small businesses can do, but the uh, the federal bailout certainly helped a lot of small businesses to weather through some of this. Obviously, those who were who were best prepared for this was the ones who had cash uh, and able to weather through it and keep their employees uh, on board as well. So, it's it's been a you know it's kind of a how do you plan for the future? How do you plan for these kinds of things? You just you know it's hard to plan for anything, but you always want to be planning for that rainy day. What was the Small Business Association's guidance to those mom and pop shops when they were having to navigate state mandates or local ordinances and really having to decide who to follow? 
Well, we were there as a resource, and certainly we wanted to make sure that they understood all the, the options out there for them and the opportunities. And, and uh, a lot of the small businesses, the mom and pops out there, didn't understand the whole PPP process. It certainly was complicated even for the, for the most, uh, uh, you know, the ones who are most in tune with it. So we were helping uh, a lot of those businesses get through and navigate uh, the 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 pitfalls and the opportunities that uh, was in front of them. And so we continue to help them through those. We've got uh, opportunities for uh, you know, our businesses in regards to relationships with lenders uh, to help them through some of the, the these pieces. But I think the lenders also uh, have stepped up well. Uh, they've been certainly more than willing to help small business uh, as long as they had the capacity to be able to, uh, to see the future of, of new business coming in. But, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's all, you know, it's all kind of hit and miss for both our financiers and for our businesses and on whether or not they want to even continue moving forward. It's the time to go get a job kind of thing and, and, and give up their dream of, of owning their own business, too. Early on, you indicated that some businesses were able to thrive and adapt and pivot. What would you say were some of the successes that emerged during the pandemic? Well, I think what I think most of us realize is that we can do a lot more than we thought we could uh, and we, with, with a lot less than we thought we could. I think some of the other successes, you know, depending on what side of the fence you're on, is that, well, maybe we don't need an office anymore. And maybe we can work remotely. And so that is going to be an interesting dynamic as we move forward in regards to office space. Do we need office as much office space? And so we're kind of keeping an eye on, on those kinds of things right now from a, a landlord-tenant perspective of what those, uh, you know, what the future holds in, in that area. But having, as we're doing this interview today, uh, this is uh, this is kind of a, uh, a new dynamic, I think, for all of us. And now we're kind of becoming pretty uh, old, old hands at, uh, at this electronic communication. There were a variety of supports in place from the federal to local state governments. What would you like to see from the public as, you know, in some areas, it looks like the pandemic might be loosening up, but in others, it very much remains part of our day to day. I think we have to understand that this is going to be our new reality for the foreseeable future uh, where we're at. I think um, as, a, as a business owner, uh, this is our new reality. Uh, and we need to be able to continue to weather through this, continue to find ways to do business in this new economy, as we call it. Uh, and I think even our consumers are trying to figure it out. They're going through it just like we are. And so uh, as we go out, as, as you go out as a consumer, you know, understand what that small business owner is up against, has been up against, because, you know, we've all lived it together. And I think the fact that, you know, Misery Loves Company is certainly uh, bodes in, in this occasion very well here. So, Rick Murray from the Arizona Small Business Association. Thank you. Thank you. With more people moving to Arizona, the latest data from the 2020 census offers insight into where they're relocating. One takeaway is that while urban metros saw growth, populations in some rural counties are shrinking. To understand more about how the state's demographics are changing, we got analysis from Jason Jurgovich, an associate professor at the University of Arizona, whose research involves the census. I think that uh, a number of ways in which the state's changing, especially compared to previous growth patterns, uh, is the state's uh, growing slowly, more slowly. Um, so between 2010 and 
2020, the growth rate was uh, was much less, uh, much slower than what it was in 2000 to 2010. And we also see as a part of that, um, uh, a, a rural urban divide that mirrors some national level trends. So in 2000 to 2010, just one Arizona County lost population. And in between 2010 and 2020, uh, five Arizona counties lost population. Um, and so that, that sort of difference between the growth in Maricopa and Pima, uh, as well as uh, Mojave County versus some of the more rural counties is, is, is uh, representative of what we're seeing nationally. And we're also seeing um, a, two other sort of takeaways, I think, is an increasingly aging population uh, across the state, uh, particularly in rural areas. And Arizona is becoming uh, even more racially and ethnically diverse um, based on data from the past 10, 10 years. And just to remind our viewers, what happens with this data next? Yeah, so uh, the states uh, have those redistrict redistricting files. Uh, and so many of them are busy, uh, you know, obviously looking at the data and um, processing it with respect to redrawing congressional districts, redrawing state house and senate districts. And because of the delay, uh, there's a lot of pressure um, for various states, given uh, deadlines for, for candidacy filing, uh, to get the work uh, done in time. Jason, will there be some negative ramifications for the rural area since the data is showing that they are shrinking in most uh, cases here in the state of Arizona? Yeah, I think there's going to be political shifts, um, not only in Arizona with respect to rural areas, but, but across uh, most of the country. When we look at the decline of uh, the population decline in rural areas, uh, five Arizona counties uh, lost population, and they include Apache, Cochise, La Paz, uh, and uh, Navajo and Gila counties. And so as a result of that, um, they'll have uh, sort of less political influence in terms of uh, the state house and, and Senate uh, districts uh, than they would uh, compared to the, the previous census. And Jason, what else are you going to be looking at in the next few months uh, as far as this data that came out from the census? So there's another uh, data file that will come out in the next couple of weeks, which is a, a, a detailed set of tables uh, relating to the redistricting data. Uh, and then of course, we, we will wrap up our evaluation of the census with the post-enumeration survey to really get a sense of how accurate this census uh, was. No census is completely accurate, unfortunately. Um, some people are overcounted and some people, including the hard to count populations, are often undercounted. And just as an example, uh, 2010 census was considered by many to be one of the most accurate censuses in American history. But when we look at uh, specific racial ethnic groups, as well as data for particular hard to count populations, uh, in 2010, for example, 2.1% uh, of Black African American individuals were missed in the census, which is roughly 800,000. Uh, black African-American individuals. 1.5% uh, of the Hispanic Latino population was undercounted, which is roughly 750,000 individuals. So once those data become available, uh, we'll be evaluating uh, those data for uh, a better sense of how uh, the Census Bureau did in 2020. Jason Jurgovich, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us. 
To get in touch, visit us on social media or send an email to Arizona360 at azpm.org and let us know what you think. We'll see you next week. Thank you.